This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. So, are we ready to go on the air? Good. Okay, good. Okay. So, last lecture. So, the final will be a week from today, um, more or less this time. Uh, again, open book and notes as the midterm was. And the focus will be on the material after the midterm. And I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. Uh, so maybe three quarters on the new stuff and a quarter or so on the prior material. Uh, also, we'll have special office hours next week. Uh, Spencer on Monday from 11 to 1. And for me, Tuesday, 12.30 to 2, and Wednesday, 11.30 to 1.30. And also, problem set 5 is now graded. We'll give it back at the end of class. Okay. Then what I want to do today is to finish up the stuff on primality testing. that we started last time. Okay. And let me comment that there's a web link on the class web page for this, and also the material I'm talking about is in the Corman Lyserson Revest book in section 31.8. They have a more extensive one. So last time we talked about the following, which let me um, cast in the following way, that if we had a special black box that we now call witness that takes in a number n that we want to test and produces either composite, the number is not a prime, or a question mark. And the idea was that we'd get this with probability equal to or greater than a half if n is composite. And we get this always when n is prime. And the idea was that if you ever get composite, then you can conclude with absolute certainty that n is, in fact, not a prime. It's a composite. And if you get a bunch of question marks, then you know one of two things has happened. Either you've got a prime, which means you'll always get question marks, or you've been unlucky however many times you ran it. Okay? So if you get, in particular, S question mark results, 
than the probability that n is a prime is at least 1 minus 2 to the minus s. And so 2 to the minus s is the probability that you were unlucky s times and got these question marks. So this is our strategy. And the real issue then is how to build this box that has these nice properties. And I talked about this just a little bit last time, but today I'm going to give you the more of the details. Okay. All right. So, so before I go into this, I want to comment on couple of other things. One is that this often comes up when your goal is actually not that you're given n, but instead you want a large prime, or in some cases, say, a prime that's greater than some value, say, m. Okay. So remember that this comes up, for example, in finding primes to be hash table sizes. Okay. It also comes up if you're using something in a crypto system and you want a prime with at least a certain number of bits. Okay. So with this, the typical thing is to say, either consider m plus 1, m plus 2, and so on. So for each of these numbers, you run this test and check to see if it's a prime. And as soon as you get one, then you stop. Okay. Or you can, say, pick a random. k-bit number, and then test if it's prime. And again, you can if it's not a prime, you just pick another one and keep going. Right? However, these strategies depend a little bit also on how many primes are there. If primes are very rare, then sort of just trying picking numbers and testing them, even if the test is pretty fast, is going to take a long time. Okay. But fortunately, primes are actually pretty dense. So if we let pi of n represent the number of primes equal to or less than n, and which sort of tells us up to n about how many primes are there. It turns out that this is very close to n over the natural log of n. So roughly speaking, every natural log of n numbers, there's a prime. I mean, obviously, they aren't completely evenly distributed. 
and sort of as an example that this works is a pretty good estimate that say pi of a billion is approximately 50.8 million okay, among the first billion numbers uh, not quite 51 million of them are prime and if you look at 10 to the ninth over the natural log of 10 to the ninth, our estimate, that's about um, 48.2 million. Okay, so we can see that there's actually slightly more than n over natural log of n, at least among the first billion. In fact, as n goes to infinity, this estimate becomes more and more accurate. And in the limit, this is the correct ratio. Okay. So that tells us then that these sort of randomly picking or trying consecutively will usually not take too long. Yeah? Is that a bound, or like you're, you're guaranteed to have at least n log n primes and n numbers, or you're not guaranteed? Well, so as I said, well, the only things that are really known, or at least the only things that I know about this, are that. In the limit, there are n over log n. And for moderate values of n, the estimate is reasonably close. Now, I'm not sure if there are any things that say that there aren't long stretches, say that when you're doing this, if there's any bound on saying how far you might have to go, you know, what's the longest consecutive sequence that has no primes. And there's probably been studies of that, but I don't I don't actually know what the what the results are. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah, but at least it tells us that they're not sort of rare. Okay. All, right. Okay. All right. So now again let me talk about how to construct this this witness routine. And the basic idea, so let's go over to here, is I talked about a specialized version of this last time, but more generally, uh, Fermat proved that if n is a prime, then a raised to the n minus 1 modulo n is 1 for a any of 1 to up to n minus 1. And as we said, this is, so you could imagine then that a simple notion of how witness might work would look the following. You might imagine you would say, pick a random A from 1 up to n minus 1. And then we can say if A to the n minus 1 mod n is not equal to 1, remember primes always are equal to 1, then 
we can return composite. And if it's equal to 1, then we return question mark. So this would have some of the properties that we want. So when we, if n is a prime, we'll always return question mark. And if we get this and return composite, we're always correct. Okay. And the only rub is that this isn't quite strong enough to give us our result that Okay, so it's not true for this that for any composite number n, um, half the a's um, show its composite. Okay. So to get what we really wanted, you'd have to have at least a 50-50 chance of proving that n was not prime. Okay. So there'd have to be lots of choices of a. Okay. So let me comment that this is true that for a random composite, it works. Okay, so if we're really choosing our number that we're testing randomly, okay, but we're actually now asking for a stronger test, one where even if somebody who knows what our test is gets to pick the number n, okay, so he gets to try and pick the number that's most unfavorable. We'd like to still have that at least half the A's prove that our number is composite. Okay, yeah. Sorry, Would you use the mic, please? Yeah. Sure I understand the statement. It's for any A or for all of those A's that has to be true. Well, no. for, there's so, some so A in we there. Want, ideally, what we'd like is that for any N. It's just the it's, statement of the, of the theorem on the top. Okay, so the statement of the theorem on the top is that for if n is prime, then this is true for all of these. For all of them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. For every one of them, um, it's true. I mean, actually, more generally, it's true for any number that's relatively prime to n. But if n is a prime, then everything is everything smaller than it is relatively prime to it. Um, all right. And in fact, there are some numbers for which this is true for all of the A's, and they're still composite. Okay, those numbers are quite rare, but there are such numbers okay, where no matter which of the A's you pick, the test will fail. Okay. And sort of just to give you an idea, um, if you consider just A equals 2, this test fails for n equals 341, 561, 645, and 
1105. Okay, those are, there are only four numbers less than 10,000 that have the property that 2 raised to 1 less than this modulo the number is 1. So that's sort of to give you an indication that for random numbers, it works quite well. Okay. But if you happen to choose one of these, um, then it doesn't work well at all. Okay. all right. So the bottom line is that this is a good test for random ones, but it doesn't quite give us what we want. So to make the test actually work for any m, okay, for any m, we have to use another number theoretic property. <coughs> and that's that if a particular version of the number has a, so if a number associated with n I'll talk about in just a minute, has um, basically a, a square root modulo 1, then it's also composite. So we're going to have a second way of using a number theoretic proof to prove that something is composite. Okay, so if we find a number such that if we square it and take it modulo n, we get 1, then it's also a proof that n is composite. Okay. And so let me now give you the, the details. So the routine, which we'll call witness, and it takes two parameters. Okay. So A is this choice. So in this case, N is odd. Okay, notice we're not really very interested in testing even numbers for primality. Okay. And A is some number in the range 1 through N minus 1. And what we're going to do is first let me just comment that we're going to represent n minus 1 in the following way. So let's say we represent n minus 1 as 2 to the t times u. Okay. And let me just comment what this means. So if you think of n minus 1 in binary, it's So remember that n is odd, so n minus 1 is even. Therefore, it actually always ends with a 0 in binary. So we can think of it as having an initial prefix followed by trailing zeros. So this number is u, and t 
is the number of trailing zeros. So this is just a way of sort of stripping those off. So sort of this is the non-trivial part, and then this is a, a power of two that we multiply it by. And so what we're going to do is first compute x0, which is a raised to the u power <coughs> mod n. And then what we're going to do is say for i is assigned 1 to t, x sub i is going to be assigned xi minus 1 squared mod n. All right, so what is, what is this doing? This is really just an efficient way of computing what we want. So remember that what we want, so this is just a comment, remember that what we want is a raised to the n minus first power mod n. Remember that, that was our sort of most basic test was, and then we want to know, is this equal to 1? Remember I said that was one part of our test. Okay. Well, a to the n minus 1 is a, well, n minus 1 we said was 2 to the t times u. So it's u times 2 to the t. And mod n, right? But, but let's forget about the mod n. Okay. So we first compute this part. Okay. That's what x0 is, a to the u mod n. Okay. And now we're getting these by this process known as successive squaring. Okay. That simply, if you have a number k raised to the 2 to the t, you can get this by getting k squared, then squaring this gets you k to the fourth. Okay. Squaring that gets you k to the eighth. Okay. So the number of these squaring operations that you want to use is t. So in particular, in here, what it is is that x sub i is equal to a to the u times 2 to the i taken mod n. Okay. So we're just successively doing this, and it's a way of doing it using these multiplication operations. Okay. So in particular, that means that x sub t, which is where we end up at the end of this loop, is a 
to the n minus 1 mod n. So this is just a sort of slick way of, in the end, computing this value, which is sort of what I want. Okay. But in addition, we get an, another benefit, which is that along the way, we're going to do an additional test. So we're going to also ask if xi equals 1, if we ever get a 1 along the way and xi minus 1 is not equal to 1 and xi minus 1 is not equal to n minus 1. Okay, well, where, where did n minus 1 come from? Well, n minus 1 is minus 1 mod n. So minus 1 squared is always 1. So these are two things. So if this is 1, you're always going to get 1 when you square it. If it's minus 1, you're also always going to get 1 when you square it, mod n. Okay. So if you get 1, even though the prior one wasn't 1 or minus 1, okay, then this is actually a proof that n is composite. Okay, so this is the way in which we made our tests stronger. In addition to doing this check at the end, okay, is, is this one, we're also checking for whether this squaring operation along the way gives us a one. Okay. And if it does, we declare the value to be composite. Okay. And then finally, at the very end, we also say that, and okay, so that's this loop. And then at the end, we say if x of t, our final value, which remember is a to the n minus 1 mod n, if this equals 1, then we also return, um, I'm sorry, then we return question mark. So remember that this is what primes do. Primes, if you take a and raise it to the n minus 1 mod n, you get 1. So if it's equal 1, you return that. Else, return composite. I'm sorry, what? No, this one uh, returns composite. So this is, if, if when you square it, you get a 1 earlier, then that's a proof it's composite. So primes do not have earlier things that give you this 1. Okay, so 
I'm not going to give you the number theoretic proof, but the key thing is that for this algorithm, okay, this does have the strong property that we want. Okay. So moving over to here, we have that if you pick A, well, actually, let me start actually more, that for any composite N, at least half the values in 1 to up to n minus 1 have witness of a n equals composite. So if you pick a random value in this range, you have at least a 50-50 chance of proving that the number is composite. And that's true no matter what the composite number you start with is. So witness of AN is a strong test to see whether or not the number is composite. Okay. And the flip side is also true if n is prime, then witness a n gives a question mark for all values of a. So it does just what we wanted in our black box. In fact, it's actually even a little stronger. It's actually true that at least three-quarters of the numbers work. So you actually have a three-quarters chance of proving it and at most a one-quarter chance of having it screw up. So let me just give you a quick thing. So, so then the, the sort of high-level thing, and this is the algorithm due to Miller and Rabin, is a way of sort of filling in. So Miller-Rabin takes as parameter a number n, which you want to test, and s, which is the number of iterations you're willing to use to test it. And you then just say, repeat s times um, pick a random a in the range 1, 2 to n minus 1. And then you say, if witness called on A and N, um, 
equals composite, then return composite. And at the end, if you get none of these, then return prime. And I'll just comment, this means that you got S question marks from witness. What are common values for S? What are common values for S? Well, if in fact, so so let's maybe to answer that, let's just look at it. So so given that we have only a one quarter chance of making a mistake here, then the probability that we return prime and n is composite. Okay, so this is the probability that we make an error is less than 1 over 4 to the s. That's using the stronger thing that 3 quarters of them always work. So in fact then say s equals 20 gives you very high confidence. Okay, a 1 and 2 to the 40th chance of error. Okay, so that's um, 1 in a trillion chance of being wrong by bad luck. Okay, so, so we're not talking about a huge number of, of iterations. So I do want to make one last postscript. So let's come back to here. And that up to now, we've kind of been thinking of multiplication as sort of a black box operation. But as we're talking about big numbers, that's not quite true. So remember that these numbers we're talking about here in this operation are log n bit numbers. In particular, for example, in here, t could be roughly log n. And similarly, so the basic operations we're doing are a squaring or a multiplication and then a mod operation. Okay. And it turns out that each of those, that we can compute something like um, xi squared mod n, okay, and something like order log squared n bit operations. think about sort of 
basic multiplication that if you're multiplying two k-bit numbers, you get something like k-squared terms that have to be added up. So if we have log n-bit numbers. Okay. And notice that that's part of the reason why we want to keep taking mods along the way. Because if you didn't take the mods as you went along, you might accumulate very large numbers that then had to be uh, multiplied. Okay, so by beating them down at every step by taking the mod n, you're reducing the number of bits you have to keep around. Okay. And now maybe one last thing just to kind of illustrate it. Um, that if you consider, say, n equals 561, which is one of our bad numbers, because this is not a prime, okay, 561 is uh, 187 times 3, so it's not a prime. Um, Notice that this is also an illustration that not being a prime is an NP, because it's easy to prove things are not primes. Okay. Um, but it turns out that A to the 560 mod 561 is equal to 1, in fact, for all A's in 1, 2, up to 560. So what this is saying is that this is a composite number that in a certain sense looks like a prime, at least for our simple test. Okay. Uh, furthermore, though, 561 is 2 to the fourth times 35. Sorry? Oh, sorry, yes, 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 of course. Sorry, n minus 1, yes. Shouldn't have uh, 561 be an even number. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, so n minus 1 is this, so that means that this is our u, and 4 is our t in our algorithm. So that means then that we first compute x0, which is a to the 35 mod 561, and that is 241. Okay, so we first do that. Uh, let, me, let me just comment that this is also computed efficiently using this sort of successive squaring approach. The only difference is that for some of them, you actually have to use an additional term when there are ones in the expansion. I don't want to go into that, but you can also do this efficiently. Okay. And then x1 
is set to um, 298, which I'll just comment is 241 squared mod 561. X2 is 166, which is the prior value, 298 squared, mod 561. X3 is 67, which is um, 166 squared, mod 561. And then finally, x4 is 1, which is 67 squared mod 561. Okay. So this corresponds to what I said that if you raise it, you always get 1 in the end. But since I got it by squaring something that was a non trivial. Um, value, that is, it wasn't 1 or minus 1, this, this was a proof that n is not prime. Yeah? There's no way to determine what the factors are from the algorithm? No. So actually, that's a good question. So the algorithm is sort of non-constructive. So I told you that it was non-prime by giving you this, the factors. But in fact, the factorization problem is a much harder problem. So it's an interesting thing that primality is a case where answering the question, is something a prime or not, is easy. However, the question of what are the factors is believed to be hard. And certainly, the best-known algorithms for factorization are much slower than the algorithms for testing primality. Do they use any of the sort of knowledge you get out of this other than the fact that factors exist? Um, Do you that problem at all? I don't know. I mean, there there may be other things that you can deduce about the numbers from it, but that that sort of number theoretic area is not. Not my area of expertise, and I'm, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, how did the last statement show that n is not prime? Okay, so I never proved it, but the, what we're saying is that if one of these values, so in essence, if a to the u to the 2 to the i okay, squared modulo n, if this is equal to 1, if I take one of my intermediate terms and square it and get 1, and this wasn't already equal to 1 or minus 1, okay, if, if you start with 1 or minus 1 and you square it, you're always going to get 1. So it's not an interesting fact. So this was a non-trivial starting number. And the fact that I squared it and got 1 is a proof that it's composite. Now, I'm not giving you the number theoretic proof of that, just as I didn't either prove that a to the n minus 1 mod n is 1 for 
primes. Okay, so it's similarly the case that this is not equal to 1 for primes. Okay, if you start with a prime number, then this does not give you 1. So if you do get 1, it tells you it's composite. Yeah, that's why, um, that's why 561 doesn't have this property. But then what happens if you do get 561 and you run this Miller-Rabin algorithm? It'll say it's a prime. No, it'll say it's not a prime. So I'm saying that when this happens, so let's go back over to here. So we said that if ever the number we get is 1, okay, that's what happened when we, when we got to x of 4, and the prior one was neither 1 nor minus 1, then we return composite. So that's why people were saying it looked as if it should say return prime, but no, what this does show is that it's a composite number. Okay, that primes don't have intermediate numbers that you can square and get one when you take a module of them. And so again, you know, I'm not giving you the the number theoretic proof. It's actually it's not that hard. It's in the actually the proofs are in the Corman Lysenson and Reves chapter. On this. Okay, but more, it's, it's kind of, you know, the number theoretic proofs are sort of um, off topic for what we're trying to do. Okay. Yeah. So, what value of A did we choose in this example we just went through? A was 7. Sorry, did I not show that somewhere? But, oh, maybe I forgot to say it. <laughs> Sorry. This is for uh, A equals 7. Yes. I'm not sure how hard it is to reverse engineer that from A to the 35. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that that's a hard problem also. <laughs> so probably not for numbers of this size. Okay. So, so this is really sort of all the, the regular material. I had planned. I, I did want to leave a little time both to talk about topics and I wanted to do one other postscript. Um, so at first, anything else on this before it disappears? Yeah, George. Uh, I'm still a little unclear on why do you give x i minus 1 and i give a minus 1. I'm sorry, so why let's go over to here. So why I did? Yeah, uh, the, um, the last thing you have the x. So this one? Okay, so as I said, so it's just that this is a second property that primes have. Primes have the property that if you take one of these results and square it, unless the number you started with was 1 or minus 1, okay, if you start with 1 or minus 1, then if you square it, you always get 1. Okay, that's, you know, just. If you just think about normal arithmetic, the fact that 1 squared or minus 1 squared is 1 isn't interesting. But for any other number, if you square it and take it modulo a prime, you don't get 1. So if you do get 1, that's a proof that your current number n is not a prime. And that's why you can return composite. 
So it's sort of sort of so we're really using this two two properties about primes. One that if you raise it to the n minus one and take it mod n, you always get one if n is a prime. The other is you square something that's non-trivial modulo n, and you shouldn't get one back. If you do, then it's a composite. And what we need is both of these tests in order to make sure that for every composite number, most of the A's prove that the number is composite. Okay? If we only have this test, there are some pathological numbers where this test will not work. Okay. So this makes it stronger. No, I'm sorry. Okay, that's okay. You're allowed to take more than one second to consider. So, so first I just want to say, so just as a quick review, so since the midterm, what we sort of looked at as our main topics is 10.1 and 10.2, which are sort of special cases for NP-complete problems, okay. special cases that are solvable. We also looked at chapter 11 which was approximation algorithms. Okay. We looked briefly at 12.1 and 2 on local search algorithms. And then the most recent stuff on randomized algorithms. And in particular, sort of all of these had the theme of dealing with NP-hard problems, okay. something that is an important area of study. Okay. So once you find it. Right. And let me maybe just comment that there is a lectures link on the web page that has a fairly detailed topic description for all the lectures this quarter. Okay, it has the area and a reference to the section of the text or um, uh, notation if there is no section of the text covering it. Okay. So that will give you a reasonable idea about the topic coverage. All right. I also wanted to sort of just generally give a, a comment that I I mentioned at the beginning of the class that I actually spend a fair number of amount of time talking to people in lots of different areas where they have an algorithm problem or a problem that they think is hard and they come to talk to me to try and get some advice on how to deal with it. And I would say that interestingly, often the most helpful thing that I have to offer is not so much a solution but actually converting 
the problem that they have in their minds to a precise description. So you might in particular take to heart that in this class, you've sort of started in almost all cases with a very nice, clean version of the problem to be considered, okay, stated in sort of fairly careful and precise mathematical terms. Okay. And I would say that that's also part of the reason I think that problems are often solved as graph algorithms, okay, or just perhaps as linear programs, is that before you can do that, you have to take your problem and translate it in a precise way to what's the graph that represents it. What are the edges? What are the edge weights? What are the vertices? Okay. So often people come in with a, I think, fairly clear description in their own minds, but not in a form that they can really write down in a, in a clear, precise way. And you know, even just answering the question of what exactly are we trying to optimize? You know, what's the goal? So, you know, it's just for you to take to heart somewhat for yourself that whatever area you're going off in, that's one of the things that, you know, what we've studied here won't really be useful unless you can put the problem in that formulation and, you know, in order to talk about it. And similarly, for proving a problem hard, that there's often the issue of finding the right problem to try and reduce from. Um, and also comment that it's one thing that came up actually just today talking to somebody is that many of the problems we're really interested in in a formal sense are not NP-hard. Okay. And the following thing, that NP-hardness only is something that makes sense if you have infinite inputs. And we mentioned this briefly in the context of games, that, for example, chess, albeit a complicated problem, is in its normal form finite. There are only a num finite number of chess games. And because if you duplicate positions, then at least in principle it's a draw. Okay. So that means that, in fact, Chess is solvable in constant time. It's a very large constant. <laughs> okay. So similarly, if you're talking about algorithms for routing on the internet, okay, the internet is, at least at any instant in time, a finite system. Okay. And therefore, is not in principle NP-hard. But what we usually settle for is that if the infinite, let me say, extension, so you can imagine generalizing your problem to what would be true if your internet were allowed to grow to infinity, as it seems to be doing, okay. then if this is NP-hard, then the finite case is probably hard in practice. Okay. It's not of infinite size, but it's big enough. 
So, but it is good to, to keep that in mind, that, that NP-completeness only really is a discussion of growth rates, and growth rates imply that the inputs can grow to infinity. But anyway, I think that's, that's about all I, I want to conclude with. Uh, don't go away, though. I do have um, evaluations for the TA. For me, you should be doing them online. So let me give these out. And also, Spencer, if you can give out the, the graded problem set fives. Um, yeah, probably that's, that's the most efficient. If you could divide them up into piles um, alphabetically, that'll probably make it. Yeah, the grade problem set four is also up there. Most of those are picked up. Did, did see that. So that. Though I thought that that was still based on some conjecture. There is actually some implementations of it now. Okay, but what I'm saying. The, the preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.